Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Christ Community Church, it is good to be together again this weekend, albeit digitally. Uh, Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Eric Ferris, Executive Pastor of Discipleship, uh, and I'm kind of a new old face. Uh, Lots of years ago, I was on staff for about six or seven years, Uh, went to pastor at another church for about five years, and now have returned, have been on staff since December. Uh, And uh, by way of introduction, I want to borrow a few things uh, from Josh Height from a few weekends ago. Josh is our high school and college pastor at the St. Charles campus, and he was introducing himself as he was teaching in this Big God Story series. Uh, And so I want to borrow a few things that Josh used to introduce himself, to reintroduce myself. And the first thought is this, Josh was talking about loving movies and in particular, Lord of the Rings. And, you know, so many pastors love Lord of the Rings and so many teaching pastors use Lord of the Rings illustrations in their sermons. And you hear it so much that you start to wonder, can I be a Christian if I don't like Lord of the Rings? So I'm about to set some of you free right now. I can't stand Lord of the Rings. I've tried to watch it about four or five times. I get about 10 minutes in and then I just totally bail. So may you be set free from any burden you might have about loving or needing to love Lord of the Rings. Uh, Here's the second thought. Josh was sharing about running marathons and, uh, Uh, You know, lots of people have like their full marathon 26.2 stickers on their car or their half marathon 13.1 stickers on their car. So I wanted you to see a sticker that is on the back of my car. And here it is. I can't stand running. I don't much like Lord of the Rings and I don't really like running. But let me tell you what I do love. I love the church. I've given my entire adult life to pastoring in the local church. And at a certain point in my life, I decided if Jesus says he loves the church, the church is the thing he's building. It's the thing he loves the most. That to love Jesus is to choose to love the things that Jesus loves. And our topic this weekend is the church as we explore this big God story. And so I have a question. What is this? Like, honestly, what are we, what are we doing right now? What is, what is this thing called church? Uh, so a few years ago, uh, I was preaching on this topic at a different church, and I thought I wanted, to, I wanted to hear kind of what church people think about church. And so I sent it out on social media and allowed people to respond via text. And the question was very simple. It was a fill in the blanks. The church is, and just fill in the blanks with a few words. And I got about 650 responses that day. And interestingly, about 250 different answers when you ask church people, what is the church? Uh, So I got some funny answers. Uh, Some people just sent emojis. Uh, You know, one answer was the church is a body. One answer was the church is a hospital. Uh, Someone said the church is anywhere you have more than one believer. Uh, a place of unconditional love and acceptance. Uh, Some people said it's a place to worship and grow. Uh, One person said when it's done correctly, it's the best thing on earth. And I would agree. You know, there's, there's a lot of thoughts and opinions out there about church and what church is and what church should be doing. But when Jesus said, I will build my church, he had something in his mind. And so as, as we step back and we learn to appreciate the big God story, what God is doing from beginning 
to end and we start to understand how the church fits into all of that, I think we get a clearer understanding of what church is and what it should, should all be about. And I, I will admit on the front end, uh, I have a goal for our time together today. I have a goal for you and for me. And the goal is this, a vision for us to catch that we would never again settle for less when it comes to church. And, and here's what I mean by this, that we would never again settle for mere church attendance. Ch attending church is okay, but being the church is something categorically different and it's actually what we were created for. So let's pray together as we get ready to study God's word and allow God's word to speak to us and challenge us and transform us. So God, we invite you by your spirit to be with us. Uh, we're all over the place right now. We're in, we're, uh, some of us are in church buildings and some of us are in houses and some of us are in our backyards, but uh, we've gathered together in this way to study your word. And we know your word's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It accomplishes things. And so we submit ourselves today. We say yes and amen, God, to whatever you want to say to us and whatever you want to do in our lives. We're yours today. In Jesus' name, amen. So when Jesus said, I will build my church, he said that to Peter. And so here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And as I read this, I want you to do something weird with me. I know you're at home and this might feel weird, but every time I say the word people in the text I'm about to read, I want you to say the word people out loud with me as I read. Uh, and it's okay, you're in your own home, you're allowed to be weird in your own home. So here we go. I'm going to read these two verses. Every time I say people, I want you to say people out loud with me. All right, here it is. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been talking about the big God story. And I, I want to draw it um, and incorporate a lot of the thoughts that we've been exploring over these uh, weeks throughout the summer. Uh, I might draw it in a slightly different way, but all of the concepts are the same that we've been talking about. And because sometimes for me, see, hearing people say things in a different way or explain things in a different way, even though it might be the same thing, is helpful. And so uh, a slightly different picture for you. Uh, in the beginning, God created. God created everything. He created the world we live in, and he created you and me. He created it. It's all his. He's the king. And uh, all of these little peas in the tree, you have uh, people in a place experiencing God's presence and accomplishing God's purposes. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. We were created in God's image, and he put us in his creation to take care of everything that he had created, including each other. And essentially he said, I'll be your king and you, you will be my representatives in my creation. And so you just live your life under the leadership of God. And so God is king. And when all of this is happening perfectly, that's called shalom. But not too far into the story, something goes terribly wrong. Essentially humanity says, 
uh, we don't want God leading us. I don't need God as my king. I'll rule myself. Thank you very much. And so what we call that is the fall. This is essentially when humanity said, uh, we don't want God as our king anymore. We want to rule over ourselves. And what happens from there is tragic. The way things were intended to be spiral out of control. And this reality, this, this fallen world, this, you can call it, think of it as a counterfeit kingdom. If everything perfectly, God's shalom is God's kingdom. We have this counterfeit kingdom running throughout human history where essentially humanity is trying to rule itself. And it is a bit of a dumpster fire. I mean, we, we are making a mess of a whole lot of stuff. And, and so another way that this reality is talked about in scripture is uh, it is referred to as the kingdom of darkness. It is also referred to as the kingdom of this world. And this is a reality. When you wonder, how could the world be at the same time so incredibly beautiful and majestic and wonderful and so broken and painful and out of control. It's because you have these two realities going on at the same time. Well, God very quickly makes an implicit promise that he is not going to allow things forever to continue to spiral out of control, that he was going to restore everything. And this is the big God story. So at a certain point, God taps a man on the shoulder. His name is Abram, changes his name later to Abraham. And he says to Abram, Abram, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a great family. In fact, your family is going to be so great, it's going to become a nation. But Abram, I'm blessing you because your family that becomes a nation, I'm going to accomplish my purposes through your family, through, you, through becoming a nation, and you're going to be a blessing to every nation of the world. Essentially what he's saying to Abram is, I'm going to fix everything through you and your offspring. So this does in fact happen, and eventually Abram's family becomes what we know as the nation of Israel. And so if you ever wonder, why in the world of all the nations on the earth, why does the entire Old Testament of the Bible track the nation of Israel, this small little nation? It's because it's the story of God's purposes unfolding throughout human history. So Israel at a certain point makes a choice. God had said, you will be my people and I will be your God. I will be your king. But at a certain point, Israel looks around to all the other nations and says, all these other nations, they elect a king from among them. And, and so why wouldn't we do that too? And so in essence, what Israel says is, God, we're no longer satisfied with you as king. We want to rule ourselves. We want to select from among ourselves a king to rule over us. And uh, at that time, there was a spiritual leader named Samuel that tells them this is not going to go well. Don't, do not do this. They do it anyway. And God, in his patience and his loving kindness and his judgment, essentially says to them, Rock on with your bad selves. This is not going to work out well. And so as you read throughout the Old Testament, you see, you see th this mess going on where God's purposes are being accomplished. God is trying, trying to work out restoration throughout human history. And at the same time, the people that he chose to accomplish it are all over the map in terms of how well they cooperate with him as king. So then you move on in the story. And at a certain point, God taps a man on the shoulder named David. And he says to David, he makes David a promise. He says, David, one of your offspring is going to become a great king. 
not only is one of your offspring going to be a great king, they're not just going to be the king over the nation of Israel. They're going to be a king over every nation of the world. This is going to be the greatest king the world has ever seen. It's going to be a, he's going to be a restoring king, a saving king. And then it gets even crazier, an eternal king. The greatest king the world has ever seen. And then you, you fast forward to the days of Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene. And you know what Jesus claims to be? He doesn't just claim to be a rabbi. He's not just a good teacher. Jesus has the audacity to say, hey, you remember when God said to Abram that he was going to fix everything that's broken? And you remember when God made a promise to David that one of his offspring is going to be the greatest king the world has ever seen, and then he's going to fix everything that has been broken, and it's going to be accomplished for every nation on the earth, and it's going to last forever? Remember when all of that stuff was said? I'm him. Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. He's not just a religious figure. He claimed to be the center point of human history. And you know what they did with that? They killed him. And do you remember what they put on the cross when they crucified Jesus? Right? They, they put a plaque on the cross and it said, mocking him, king of the Jews. They killed Jesus for claiming to be a king. Essentially, they killed Jesus for being truthful, for saying who he really is. Well, Jesus comes back to life three days later, and he says to his followers, okay, now here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go back to heaven. One day I'm going to come back. But I'm going up. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to equip and empower you to continue the work that I have started here. In essence, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you to continue to live out and accomplish God's purpose in human history. And Jesus says, I will build my church and it will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the age in the big God story that you and I are living in is often referred to as the church age. And there are beautiful things happening in the church age and there are tragic things happening in the church age because this is happening and this is still happening. If I could just offer a pastoral thought here for a moment. For those of us who follow Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't be surprised when the world is out of control. We shouldn't be surprised when this counterfeit kingdom, when the world of darkness, uh, when the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of this world, when, when, we, when the world stiff arms God, says in a polite way, no, thank you, God. If I'd say it in a more blunt way, in direct rebellion to God. And we see anger and racism and hate and murder and things just being out of control. I don't like it. It makes me sad. It makes me weep. It makes me long for one day when Jesus comes back and makes everything perfect again. It does a lot of things to me emotionally. It doesn't surprise me. It should not surprise Christians who are biblically informed to see a world that is so desperately hurting. So we have, we have the church and God is accomplishing his purposes through this group of people. God has always wanted a group of people to cooperate with him in accomplishing his purposes in human history. And that today is the church. One day, Jesus is coming back. 
This is a throne. This is a throne. Don't make fun of my art. Uh, I'll put some glory on the throne. This is glory. Don't mock my glory either because you don't know how to draw glory either. All right. So you have one day Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, all of this mess is eradicated and everything is made perfect again the way it was meant to be in the beginning. But we don't live there yet, do we? We don't live in perfection yet. We live in this messy middle. Some people refer to this age as the spirit age because Jesus said, you're going to continue my purposes, but you cannot do it in and of yourselves. You're going to need God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're going to need God to empower you. So we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to cooperate with God, to accomplish his purposes in the earth. So this is called the church age. It's also called the spirit age. It's also referred to as this weird, weird period in time of already, but not yet. Because Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we get glimpses of it and tastes of it. And we get these small pieces of what, what perfection is going to look like. But we also got all this going on too. Now here's something we all need to recognize. We all lived here. We were all born into this kingdom. And the truth is my sinful nature is very comfortable in this kingdom. And we learn how to function in this kingdom. But at a certain point, by God's grace in his spirit, what happens is we start to recognize that this is not the way God intended it to be and it's not what I was created for. And so God makes me alive to him to understand that there's a better way, that there's a way that we were intended to live and it's not this mess. And so what we do is, what the cross accomplishes for us is it gives us the ability to be transferred essentially from this counterfeit kingdom into God's kingdom. Because at a certain point, uh, the, the, pow the power of the cross sets us free from slavery to this and it offers us forgiveness. And so all we have to do is repent, which really just means something as simple as this. God, I've been living in this world for a long time and I got pretty comfortable there, but it's a mess and I don't want to live this way anymore. I want to be forgiven. I want to be set free from this. And I want to learn how to live life the way you created me to live life. And so we got to, this is the hard thing about living in God's kingdom and being a Christian. We're at the same time unlearning all of this stuff that we learned to be comfortable with in this kingdom. And we're learning a whole new way to be alive, to live life to its fullest in God's kingdom. And so it's a, it's a struggle as we continue to grow and mature as Christians. This is the big God story. And one day Jesus is coming back. But right now we live in the church age. And God is accomplishing his purposes through the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. And so now what I want to do for, for the time we have remaining, by the way, we're about halfway through. Uh, I, I, I participate with services online too, just like you do. Uh, and so uh, if, if, if you're mentally checking out right now, just hit pause, go toast your bagel, then come on back and stick through all the way to the end because I think it'll be worth your time, okay? Jesus said, I will build my church. What did he mean by that? So we're going to play a quick game. It's with animals. Groups of animals are called certain things. So we're going to start with easy ones. You'll pick this up. We're going to start with easy ones, and then we're going to make our way through to the more difficult ones, okay? Here we go. A group of fish is called a school. A group of wolves 
is called a pack. A group of geese is called a gaggle. Okay, those are the easy ones. Now we're moving on to more difficult ones. A group of jellyfish is called a smack. A group of rhinos is called a crash. A group of porcupines is called a prickle. A group of owls is called a parliament. A group of skunks is called a stench. That makes sense. A group of giraffes is called a tower. A group of gorillas is called a band. A group of Christians is called a church. Church is a people word. Uh, throughout the New Testament, when the word church is used, sometimes it's used for like a handful of believers, maybe in a house church. Sometimes it's used for every believe, all the believers in a certain town. Sometimes it's used for all the believers in a certain region. And sometimes it's used like church capital C, which is all believers everywhere for all time. But church is a very simple word and it's a people word. It's a gathering word. Wherever you have followers of Jesus, there you have the church. So in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, which we read together earlier, Peter makes some statements about the church. And he makes uh, two, two statements here in, in these two verses uh, that we're going to explore for just a bit. Uh, one is verse 9 and one is verse 10. And the truth is Peter didn't make up these words. He actually borrowed them. So verse 9, he borrowed from Exodus and verse 10, he borrowed from the prophet Hosea. And whenever the New Testament writers um, or the church leaders were referring back to the Old Testament, it just reminds us that this is one continuous story. All right, so verse 9. Peter says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. It's almost a direct quote from Exodus chapter 19. It's when the Israelites were set free from slavery in Egypt and they, they come to Mount Sinai. It's where the big 10 happens, the 10 commandments, they're given the law. And it's explained to them that that God didn't just set them free from Egypt as just some random act, but rather they were set free for a purpose. That God was choosing that group of people through whom he was to accomplish his purposes. And so he set them free from Egypt to bring them back to the promised land because he was looking for a people that would acknowledge his kingship so that he could accomplish his purposes through them. And so when, when Peter says, for us as a church, when he, when he quotes from Exodus 19, he's saying, you're chosen, but you're chosen for a reason. It's not just random. There are, there are purposes to be accomplished. Then in verse 10, it says, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is from Hosea. Now this is, this is a little bananas. Okay, so Hosea is a prophet and God tells him to marry a prostitute. And he says, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute and she's going to do what prostitutes do. She's going to be unfaithful to your marriage, but I want you to love her anyway. And this is a picture of God loving his people, even though we're unfaithful to him and inconsistent. Uh, and he says, you're going to have kids and they're going to be essentially offspring of unfaithfulness. And he gives all the kids specific names. One of the kids is named, not my people. Essentially what God is doing is he's providing some symbolism where he says, you know, the offspring of unfaithfulness is more unfaithfulness. It's chaos and disorder. And 
So it's, it's kind of like this right here. The offspring of unfaithfulness is more unfaithfulness. It's more chaos. And so if you're living in this kingdom, if you're living down here, you, you can't make a claim to be God's people. Make sense? Because you're here and you've said, you've stiff-armed God and said, I don't want God to be my leader. I don't want God to be my king. And so in Hosea, uh, one of the kids is named, not my people. And, if you, and then if you read through Isaiah, it just talks about how God wants to restore his people. You're going to be unfaithful but I'm going to show you mercy and I'm going to regather you. And once again, you're going to be my people. God's mercy and his forgiveness, taking people who once were not his people and saying, come on in. I want you to be a part of what I'm doing. God's invitation is there for every single one of us today. That we could receive mercy and say to God, I've, I've done the whole counterfeit kingdom thing. I've tried to lead my own life. I've gone the way of the world. It's a mess and I'm sorry. And I want to live life the way that you created for it to be lived. And God would say, once you were not a people, but now you are my people. You've received mercy. So if I borrow the way that we've been talking about words in this big God story series, uh, which is why I put all the peas in the tree, right? I would say this. Church is God's people in a place, Streamwood, St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora. Church is God's people in a place, empowered by God's presence, the Holy Spirit, which we've already talked about, actively cooperating with God's purposes. Church is not whatever we want it to be. We don't just make this up as we go. So there are, there are two word pictures that uh, help us think about the church that Jesus is building. And I want to explore them with the, the minutes we have left together. And as we explore these word pictures, I want to point out something that's probably pretty obvious, uh, but I think it's worth saying as we explore these word pictures. If Jesus is building his church, it means that it is a work in progress. And if church is a people word, it means that Jesus is building people. So we are a work in progress as individuals. And every church, every gathering of believers is corporately a work in progress. So let me say this another way. You know you're a work in progress. And I know I'm a work in progress. We know we're not perfect. And we actually like the thought that I'm a work in progress and we want other people to acknowledge that I'm a work in progress and show me grace. We're pretty good at that part of it. What we're not, what we're not so good at is the truth is we're okay with us being a work in progress, but we're not always okay with other people being a work in progress. And sometimes when we, when we show up at a church, a corporate gathering, the truth is we have this uh, desire in our hearts. We want everybody there to be a little bit better than me, right? Because you have an expectation that y like you, you, everyone should acknowledge you're a work in progress, but they should be way further along. It's just not true. You have people at all, all uh, places of the spectrum of spiritual maturity. But it's not just true that we are a work in progress as individuals. It's also true that every local gathering of believers is a work in progress. So if you read the first few chapters of Revelation. What you'll find is Jesus writing letters to seven different churches. And every letter says, starts with the same thing, where Jesus says, I see you. 
which should remind us that Jesus is paying attention to and building his church. And in every one of those letters, he has a critique and he has a commendation. Where he says, I like this, but I don't like this. And you know that's true of every local gathering of believers. There are always ways that we could be growing and learning and uh, being more the people of God that we were created to be. And so we're a work in progress as individuals and we're a work in progress as an entire church. Okay, so with that, with that reminder, word picture number one, the body of Christ. This is all about mission, okay? Um, and when we talk about mission, we're talking about God's presence and God's purpose. First Corinthians chapter 12, it's talking about spiritual gifts. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There's God's presence. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all people. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. Let me paraphrase that. Everybody has a gift or spiritual gifts. All of us bring something to the table to contribute and it's for the common good. I'll say it a different way. You have a gift. And your gift was given to you, but it's not for you. We are all empowered by God's spirit, but the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God puts inside of us, they are meant to be used to serve other people always. It's God's presence, his Holy Spirit, helping us accomplish God's purposes. Now the body's not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, I'm, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it doesn't for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And, and this, this text continues to go on. Uh, I skipped a bunch of verses for the sake of time that explain a lot of the specific spiritual gifts. But in verse 18, it says, but in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, many parts, one body, mission. We all have a part to play. We all have something to contribute and we need people different than us for the body of Christ to function well. There's work to be done. There's people to be introduced to God's kingdom. There's needs to be met. There's the poor to be served. God's purposes accomplished in real ways. And that's why I'd say, honestly, just attending church is lame. The real joy is when you roll up your sleeves and begin to discover your gifts and contribute in meaningful ways to what God is accomplishing in the life of a local church, the body of Christ. Second word picture, family of God. Oh man, we... When you start talking about family with Americans, when we're talking about we and not me, Americans are so individualistic that this one flies right over our heads a lot of time. But when you're talking about the family of God, you're talking about God's people in a place, right? Like a family sharing space. So uh, three different texts that talk about the family of God. John chapter one. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 1 John chapter 3. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us 
is that it did not know him. You know, when you acknowledge God as your father, God as your king, you get a lot of brothers and sisters that come with that. And now you have to learn how to live in a family. Or 1 Timothy 5, some coaching on family life. Don't rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. It's the family of God. It's relational. Now, let's just acknowledge something that we all pretty much know, but it's once again probably worth saying out loud. There is no such thing as the perfect family, and there's no such thing as the perfect size of family. Big church, small church, style of church, set that aside for a second. Let's talk about quality of relationship. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about serving one another. Relationships are tricky and they're sticky. We all know this. So I would say, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when things get tough. Or don't get surprised when you get hurt from time to time. If you are actively engaged in the eternal purposes of God, in the life of a local church, you're going to experience pain. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying it's the goal. I'm just saying it's a reality because we're all a work in progress. So we shouldn't be surprised by it. And so, you know, I, I think about it this way sometimes. The person I love most in life is my wife. And I have hurt her. Uh, there were two years in a row that I completely forgot her birthday. Twice in a row. Now you would think after doing it once that the next year I'd be on high alert and I was so dumb that I wasn't. And I hurt her. I love her. And I hurt her. Uh, I was on a missions trip once with a bunch of teenagers and my wife and we were in Wales. And we were at a bus stop and we were going over one town and got on the bus and I'm in youth pastor mode so I'm counting heads of teenagers and didn't realize that my wife didn't get on the bus with us and I left my wife at a bus stop in a a foreign country and I love her and I hurt her. It's family. It's family. It's not perfect. Anger right now is on the rise. Anxiety is on the rise. We've got, uh, we've got COVID going on. We've got racism going on. We've got violence going on. And you know what? Listen, I'm not surprised by all that. I'm not surprised by racism and hate and all the things going on in the world. That's always going to be true. But here's how we could do better as the people of God. As the family of God, as the body of Christ, we can't allow the same anxiety and anger and division become a part of the character of the church. Listen, the church is the people of God accomplishing the purposes of God, empowered by the presence of God. And listen, nowhere in scripture does it say the goal of the church is to fix this. We're to have influence over this, yes, But the church isn't called to fix this. The church is called to be the people of God in such a beautiful way that it offers a contrast to what is going on down here. And so let me ask you a question. How are you doing with love these days? How are you doing with love? They will know we're Christians by our love. If I look at what's going on in the world and then I look at the church, could I say, I want to be a part of that because the relationships are qualitatively different different. That they're about something that's bigger. 
So how are you doing with love? Listen, I care more about the family than I do the form. I care more about the family than I do the form. One of the things that has been revealed in the American church over the last six months is how much we love our big auditoriums. And I'm not denigrating what we do. I'm standing in a large auditorium right now. So I'm not denigrating what we do in large auditoriums. I think believers should gather to worship and celebrate communion and baptism and hear the word of God preached. But, but large auditoriums, the way we do it is a form of that. COVID hasn't stopped the church. Maybe it has taken away from us a form of church that has become a bit of an idol to us. But I promise you over the last six months, I have seen beautiful expressions of the church here, there, and everywhere. And not just Christ Community Church, although I've seen it in Christ Community Church in about a hundred different places. But instead of worrying about form and when we can get back in the auditorium, which will be in a few weeks, by the way, how about we ask the question, how am I doing with family? How am I doing with love? So I finish with this. My prayer for you is that you never see the word church the same ever again. When you see the word church, I want you to see this. You are church. You are church. Jesus loves his church. Jesus died for his church. Jesus is building his church and one day Jesus is coming back for his church and you are church. We are church. May we never again merely settle for attending church, being the church. That's way better. So now let's take a few more minutes and worship together.